You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 187 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm... <laughs> You're thinking about it, clearly. The fact that I have to think about it suggests that I'm not tickety-boo. However, oh, I'm pretty okay. good. The boys are, are back at school, and, yes. uh, you know, life continues apace as it does. And, yes. yeah, we just kind of... Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just term three, July. It's cold. You know, it's it it's I'm good. Place is noisy again. Your place like is noisy, the and the traffic yeah. is back on the roads, right? I know. Oh, it's but so anyway. exciting for you. So exciting. <laughs> but you know what? I'm actually pretty good because I, I, in case people missed it, the um the cover for the Adaban Cipher, the first book, which is called the Book of Secrets, um, yes. has been revealed. And and if you missed it, there's a, a link in the show notes to my website where it is. And um, the feedback on it has been amazing. People are so excited about it. I love it. I love it too. And um, oh, I got this great. Uh, somebody tweeted me, and they were like, "Oh my god, I love that girl. Look, she's so cool with her bow and arrow." And I'm like. Wait until you meet her sister. <laughs> yeah, awesome. She's like, oh, I can't wait to meet her sister. So yeah, no, it's pretty cool. I, like it's 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 very exciting when you put something out there like that because it's um, it's like um, covers are funny things because you you have this idea in your head of what your people look like because obviously you're the yes. author and they're moving around in your head and that's what they do, and then once the book comes out though, or once once someone else reads the manuscript. Um, those people change depending on who's reading it. You know what I mean? Like it's it's, mm. it's you're gonna you're gonna picture those characters differently to the way that I would necessarily have pictured them. So um, there's always that kind of moment with an author of when the cover is actually revealed of like, oh, how did the publisher see these people? Um, yeah. So yeah, so it's it's but it's great when when it the, the the whole concept goes out there and people are just really enamoured of the whole concept. So yeah, it's good. I love I'm, it. I'm very but- excited. Can you tell, just remind us, why is it actually called the Adaban Cipher? Like what's an Adaban and what's a Cipher? Well, the name of the, the so the book is called The Book of Secrets yes. and the the actual first book in the series is called The Book of Secrets and we find out, um, you know, further down the track what that is. But a Cipher is the is, is a coded medieval manuscript, a, code, a coded book. Um, mm-hmm. So it's about that. And, and Adaban becomes clear once we actually read the book. I, I, ah. it's, yeah, so it's, um, yeah. That's all you're going to say. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it right there on the floor, right there. That's just very us. exciting. Very and I'm going to wait until you finish the book and then you can talk to me about it, all right? <laughs> okay, all right. I've read the first three chapters. Because I haven't got the other chapters, Alison. <laughs> no, haven't got the other chapters. But um, 
Um, Renee Mahuka is about to get, I sent off in the post to her yesterday, the uh, assigned uh, proof copy, advanced reader copy of oh. the book, um, which she won in my newsletter giveaway. And she's very, very excited about receiving that. So she's going to know the ending of book one before you do, Valerie. Oh, so oh that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we want to give a shout out to Bobo. 009. <laughs> I love that. I love some of the names that people put on iTunes. So do I. And uh, Bobo009 has left us a review on iTunes and has said, So You Want to Be a Writer has become my mainstay for entertainment and education on a long commute. The interviews are great and it makes me giggle as Al responds to the word of the week. Are you ready, Al? <laughs> I have learnt tips on improving, <laughs> on improving craft and how to start an author's platform. I even begrudgingly tried Twitter and love it now. Thanks Yay. for the advice and effort, ladies. Oh, hooray. Thank you, Bobo009. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to leave us a, a review and rating on iTunes. And if you do have, uh, if, if anyone else has some um, time to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really be grateful. It'll only take you 30 seconds uh, because it really helps us in the rankings. So thank you again, Bobo009. I feel like I have to say it in a certain way. It's, it's, it's a, like it's a it's secret a cool, agent name. Yeah, it's like a secret you agent do. name. I think All right. Bobo009. <laughs> Let's move on to the world of writing and publishing this week. Uh, I wanted to point out a cool um, competition that uh, I read about in Eragrime Writers Studio and it's a flash fiction competition. Mm. And flash fiction is becoming more and more popular these days. In fact, very recently at the Australian Writers' Centre, we did a call out for some flash fiction of only 25 words or fewer and we got thousands of entries it was amazing. But anyway, this is uh, for stories up to 100 words and it is by the Cesar Egido Serrano Foundation and it's their fifth international flash fiction contest. So I am mentioning it because it's international. People from all sorts of countries can enter, including Australia and various other countries. So it's for very short fiction pictures, um, very short fiction pieces of up to a hundred words, but get ready for this. What do you think the prize is? I know what the prize is, Val. Oh, sorry. So I'm okay. sorry, but I can't even <laughs> pretend not to know what the prize is. But everyone out there, just wait. Sit on the edge of your seat. Val okay. has an announcement. Okay. Everyone have a guess in your head how much you think the prize is right now. So all you need to do is write 100 words and you can enter um, any time before the 23rd of November to this um, from any country. So go and um, you also entries are accepted in four languages, English, mm -hmm. Spanish, Arabic and Hebrew. So go on. The prize is in the US dollars twenty thousand dollars. Twenty thousand dollars. It's quite a word rate, really, isn't it? How that's incredible. How good's that? That's so really everyone good. enter this competition. Mm. We'll there's no the entry fee. Yeah, there's no entry fee. And we'll put the link in the show notes, which of course you can find at so you want to be a writer.com.au. So I thought we'd open with a bang on that one, Al. 
That is a bang. That's a big bang. I can't. I, I, I thought about this and I thought to myself, because I don't really write flash fiction and I've come to the conclusion that that's because it's really hard. Like, it is I hard. actually think it's a lot. It's It takes me 10,000 words to get going, let alone <laughs> <laughs> let alone 100. Because I, I remember, you know, because over my many years of various bits of writing all the things that I do, I've written, you know, short copy, long copy, you know, ad copy, the whole bit, you know, everything, annual reports. And I have to say that I think anything that requires you to to, to get an entire concept together in a in few words is is harder. It's actually harder than harder. you know writing a two thousand word feature or a you know or even an annual report, although they can be very dull. Um, yeah. Because it's just it's it's the you know it it takes a lot of brain power to mm. use that few words. I think. Yes, and Stephen King once said when he was working on a short story with uh, someone else who I can't remember who that every time they came back to it, it just they just cut more and more off each time, and mm. each time they cut more and more off, it actually did get better and better, and it mm. just became a, a tighter and and better short story every time they shaved heaps off. And in fact, if you are writing a short story, chances are that if you shave thirty percent off, you will probably end up with a much better story because we're often tempted to write all the extra stuff that's in her head, but that doesn't actually add value to the reader. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I think it's actually a good discipline to, if you have some time to try writing shorter stuff yeah. just because it's, a, it's just good practice. Um, and, in fact, if you're interested in writing short stories, because I really am seeing that short stories are making such a renaissance these days. Honestly, 10 years ago it, it was very difficult to find short story collections or they mm. were there but they there were very few of them anyway. And they were hard so, to sell. If you were writing short yes. stories, they were they were actually difficult to sell but not anymore. Definitely. Yeah, now, they've, now there are even debut authors who I've got one on my shelf right now um, that are putting out series of short stories. But mm. um, they're certainly making a renaissance. There are heaps more people I w- who are interested in reading short stories. And I was talking to an editor the other day and I was saying, well, why do you think this is? And she wasn't sh- sure in terms of based on research, but her theory was that people um, – it's like people want something short and sharp and a complete experience on their commute mm. in the same way that you can listen to an entire podcast episode and go from beginning to end generally on your commute. It, generally in a short story, you get that feeling of satisfaction by the time you re- come to the end of the story and you've done that before you get to work or before you get home or whatever. Mm. So, um, yeah, um, for anyone interested in short stories, then make sure you check out uh, a new course um, called Short Story Essentials. And I think it's an awesome course. It's actually launching on the 31st of July, but it's available for pre-order now at a massive, massive discount. So, um, which will, and it's a price that will never be repeated. Um, so I think it's normally $345, but it's um, available before the 31st of July only for $239. And so if you want to find out more, you have to register your interest because the only way to get the special link to get the special discount is by registering your interest and you do that at writerscenter.com.au slash short story that's writerscenter.com.au slash short story 
All right, so let's move on to the a guy who has written many short stories, actually, and oh. that is in, indeed Stephen King. Now, this is not necessarily news, but I just thought it was an interesting article on mentor floss um, on how Stephen King was outed as Richard Bachman, which was the name that he wrote under for about four of his books, I think. Mm. And um, it was by a Stephen King fan who had read many of his books and who then read his uh, book by Richard Bachman called Thinner, which was, you know, Stephen King-esque, was so Stephen King-esque that this writer was, um, not this writer, this reader recognised this definitely has to be Stephen King and, in fact, reached out to the agent and to Stephen King himself and, you know, to say, I know it's you. Because <laughs> ah. it's interesting there are certain turns of phrases and certain things that can make you go, that sounds exactly like so-and-so. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And I feel like every any time I read uh, about a character that has a barcode tattoo, I'm going to think, oh, Leanne Moriarty wrote that. And, um, uh, <laughs> in fact, every time I read about uh, – we don't have this store here, but I, I'm assuming it's like a 7-Eleven in America. Um, uh, a quick pick, it's called quick pick, spelled yeah. like cute. Q W I K P I K, I think. So mm. I'm assuming it's 7 Eleven. Uh, because having recently read a bunch of Stephen King short stories that were unrelated to each other, he seems to like his characters to go to the quick pick. <laughs> oh, so, right. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, if I ever read about a quick pick, I'm going to think, hmm, I wonder if that's Stephen King or Richard Bachman. It's just these little things, you know, that you see commonly or, or you just kind of associate with particular writers. But, yeah, anyway, I thought it was interesting. Once he was outed, um, he decided not to publish under that name anymore because obviously there wasn't the point. And mm. and what was interesting was that he, they did okay sales but not Stephen King kind of sales. And then it was after they were outed they it, they kind of did more, which goes to oh. show you that. Authors are a brand, right? The brand matters. It does. It does matter. So A.L. Tate is a brand now. A.L. Tate is a brand now. A.L. Tate is at the top of the cover of the Adaban Cipher, of the Book of Secrets, which I thought was interesting, whereas A.L. Tate was not the top of the Mapmaker Chronicles. Um, so that, yeah, it is interesting. It's, and it, it's funny because my publisher said, you're at the top now. And I'm like, okay, thinking, all right, whatever. But when you actually see it, you realize yes. that it means that your A brand. brand has become, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yes. But it also, right. it also means that the next thing that you write needs to be A.L. Tate. You know, there is a certain, then you become like, well, do I, how do I maintain the brand? Do I then continue just to write sort of those kind of novels for the rest of my existence or what if I've written something that isn't that you know as is actually the case I have something that is not that um what yes. do I do with that do I make it more a or tate or do I you know take it elsewhere or do I reassess it or do I just put it in my drawer or what do I do with it you know so you do become there is a certain amount of and also the other thing you've got to think about too and the interesting thing with this not with this piece about king is that mm. um if you are a writer who writes a lot 
as he is. And if you are someone who's a little bit like, you know, Nora Roberts, although she was slightly different in the sense that she was writing romance where she could write four or five books a year and it wasn't unexpected, you know, when she first started out, she was writing category romance. And and in that area, like the more you can write, the better. But he was writing, you know, standalone one, one book a year. And particularly in those days, like publishers don't want to put out more than one book a year from you because they want everyone to buy the one book that you put out that year and then be waiting for the one book that you're going to put out next year, you know. Um, And so if you are someone who who writes one book in four minutes and then like that's a lot of, okay, waiting around for for the next book to come out sort of thing. So, but you can't can't just keep writing, like you can't put out five Stephen King novels a year because – People just go, oh, I'm so sick of Stephen King. You know what I mean? So yes. there, then you're then you're with the whole situation of well, what do I do with this other two hundred thousand words that's in my head on an annual mm. basis? So you know, there's a lot to well, think about. There Some is, but I would also will, tend, will put out lots and lots and lots of books. Yeah, I, I actually would argue that it's a little bit flawed to wait a whole year if you can do it, if you can put two a year. I agree that five Stephen King novels is a bit much, but. Too. I mean, it, when you watch, you know, House of Cards or your favourite TV series, it's a pain to wait a whole year. If it came back in six months, I'd still be just as hooked. Don't you think? Well, yes and no. But I, I think that there's a – I think it depends very much on your market as well. And I I, mm. I do think that um, there is a – particularly with a book like – with somebody like Stephen King, you know, you're talking about um, – it's it's going to come out in the US. It's going to come out in the UK. It's coming out in Australia. It's coming out globally. Um, there's going to be an awful lot of like, with particularly now, maybe slightly different, you know, in 1977. But there's a lot mm. of promo. He's got a lot of promo involved in it. You know, there's a and there's yes. big bucks, big 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 mm. bucks in his in his um, promotional kind of uh, in his publisher's promotional work. So you, you kind of got to get the biggest possible bang for that. And if you're if you're then immediately turning around and promoting another book, um, maybe yeah. maybe not everyone's even heard about the one you put out in April yet, and you're already promoting the one that you're putting out in September. You know, so it's um, yes. I don't know. It's an interest. It is an interesting conundrum, and there is a certain um, hmm, it's a it's a big question. Like the, it's it must come down to market so because I know that like romance readers will will buy a lot of books every year. Yeah. They buy lots and lots yeah. and lots and lots of books. Um, but they're not buying lots and lots of $30 books every year. No. As well. So there's that aspect to it as well, I guess, the yes, price that's point true. that you're putting your books out at. And, yeah, there's a lot of questions. We're not publishers, so um, I can't answer all of those questions. But, no, I, I, just, but I find it interesting from an author's perspective. But what we are good at, especially you, is building your author platform and that is why A.L. Tate is a brand. So I feel that I have to say if you want to follow in Alison's footsteps and become a brand, then follow her advice and you can do that in her course How to Build an Your Author Platform, which you can find at writercentre.com.au slash platform. And uh, it's it's a cracker. I think it's just a great step-by-step uh, guide, a blueprint really on exactly the steps you need to take to be a brand so that you are at the top of the book instead of not at the top of your book. All right. So let's be move on. Exactly. To, now you have a link for us about setting up your freelance writer website. Is that right? 
I do. Well, I've got a question for you because this – and this okay. is a question for you. So uh, as you know, I am um, one of the tutors in magazine and feature writing, uh, newspaper writing at the Australian Writers' Centre. And a question came up for me during the um, during the week and it was from a sort of a new freelance writer who was saying, you know, should I have a blog? Do I need a website and a blog? Um, you know, what sort of steps should I be taking? And of course, I have my own thoughts on this, but I wanted to ask you this, like, should I, yes. should freelance writers create a website right from day one? And do you think that blogging is a useful thing for a freelance writer? Okay. So it's going to depend on the goals of the freelance writer, but I'll answer the first question first, which is, should freelance writers set up a website from day one? In terms of day one, the short answer is no, because in, at day one, you don't have anything that you've written yet. Yeah. <laughs> or if, you, if you're literally just starting out, wait till you've got some runs on the board so that you can actually talk about something. Mm. Uh, I think that you can, however, have an online presence, like you can just buy your domain name and just have your contact details, for example, you know, mm-hmm. without necessarily populating your site at all, just so people can contact you. So your email address or your phone number if you want and just the words, you know, John Smith Freelance Writer, something basic. So that's not even necessary, but, uh, but if you want to put something up there, just, yeah, put that. So that's day one. And then further down the track, do you need a website? I think that you don't need one if – so the word is need as opposed to should you have one. Mm. Well, as opposed to is it useful to have one? Okay, so you don't need one if you're already an established freelance writer. And we know many freelance writers who are successful, but because they're so established and so well-known in the industry and the insiders know them, they and, and you only need to Google their name to find a treasure trove, a library of their bylines on, mm. on Google, you know what I mean? Mm. So they don't have to prove anything because – they're already out there in a sense. Their bylines are out there. So they don't need one. However, in this day and age, uh, um, a lot of people just want it find, want it to be easy to contact you. So they may not be going to your website to look at all of your articles because literally they've got Google for that. Yeah. But they might just want a simple place to go, that's how I email them or that's, you know, how I find their social media. So just a simple one page exactly again like a contact page, like a business card. Um, in terms of uh, should you blog or should you put your clippings and stuff like that out out there, I mean, I don't put my clippings because I'd have so many that, as you would, that mm. it would be a full-time job just to, you know, manage Keep your up clippings. With them. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think the thing there is what do you want to be known for? So, for example, if you want to be known for food writing or getting into food writing, then ideally you want to demonstrate a love of food or an understanding of food or some kind of passion Mm. for food. Same with travel writing. You want to show that you uh, are a traveller, that you've been to various places, you know, that sort of thing. Um, So I think it depends on what you want to write about. and, And if you want to be known for a niche, then yes, do use your website to help you build that um, reputation in that particular niche. Um, I think it can be confusing sometimes when you go to some freelancer's website and there's an article on parenting, There's an artic- then there's an article on sport and then there's an article on leadership and then there's an article on back pain and then, you know what I mean? Mm. So 
I think from that point of view, if you're a generalist, it can be a little bit confusing. Um, maybe you just want to have a central repository for your own purposes. But I think that the message that you need to be clear on the message that you're sending to people, you know, whether you specialize in a certain area or whether or 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 a type of writing, as in I do, I write people's websites or I write people's content or I write profile articles for magazines like Good Weekend or whatever. So mm-hmm. before you even write your website, be clear on the message you're communicating because all your decisions thereafter will be based on what your goal is. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, should they blog? I Again, I don't think for a freelance writer, I don't think it's necessary if you're already regularly freelance writing because you have a world of <laughs> articles out there. Yeah. If you're not regularly freelance writing and let's, as an example, again, let's just take food writing and you want to get into food writing but you're not yet in there, then, yes, yeah, start writing about the things that of the area that you want to get into because then that will showcase that you have a passion for the area or at least an interest in the area and, yep. uh, an expert- and you know, have skill in writing about that area. So, mm. wow, gee, that was a bit of a long answer, Al. <laughs> Well, I mean, it is because it's a big question and I think that it's always going to have a long answer. And I think the one thing that I would say to people too is that if you don't start a blog as a freelance writer thinking that editors are going to discover you that way because it's not going to happen. Editors are not trawling around looking for people to write. Um, All it, what it basically does, as you say, is just demonstrates, you know, any expertise or any interest or any passion that you might have in a particular area um, Mm -hmm. so that if they, if you submit or pitch an article um, and you put your website details or your blog details and they go to have a look at your site, then they're, then they're basically like you're demonstrating there that you've got, you know, something to back up what it is, you know, you're pitching, et cetera. Um, yeah. But, yeah, people, you, you can't just sort of like think I'm going to put all my writing here and people are going to discover me and turn me into a freelance writer because that's not going to happen. Yeah, that's exactly mm-hmm. right. And also be careful in um, – you and I both know somebody who 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 um, was writing articles for a major newspaper and she had a particular niche and she then, because she wrote the articles, she then um, published those exact same articles, only her articles, on her own blog mm-hmm. and got into a lot of trouble mm-hmm. uh, about that. You need to look at the arrangement and agreement that you have with the publication because as far as they can are concerned, they might think that they have, they're the ones, they're paying you, so they have the right to publish it and you don't have the right to publish it. Yes, in they bought rights. Yeah. 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 So make sure that you check your agreement and don't think that everything you write you can also publish on your blog as a showcase. That may not be the case at all. And no. if that isn't the case, what I used to do is just put, say, the first two paragraphs and then say for the rest, read, you know, if you yeah, want to read the rest, it. go here. Yeah. 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 All right. Hope that's helpful to some of mm. our listeners. Mm. Right. So let's move on to our competition this week. This is really cool. Oh really my cool. God. Really cool. So this is an awesome competition where you get to win a Lithographs t shirt. That is L I T O Graphs, Lithographs t shirt, which is hand pressed with the words of your favorite book. So. <gasps> To create a lithograph, 
what happens is they take the words of a classic or contemporary book. It could be a poem, a play, a screenplay, whatever. And then they work with top artists and illustrators to create a beautiful design inspired by those words. Then they print the words of the book in the shape of the design. Wow. That's, I know. And so How you can exciting. actually read the book on posters, T-shirts, tote bags, scarves, things like that. And you can check them out at lithographs.com. That's L-I-T-O-graphs.com. So they can do any book. Well, I'm not entirely sure about any book, but right. a lot of books. Certainly oh. they can do a lot of books that are no longer in copyright. Uh, of course. Um, but, uh, yeah, and there's heaps available. It's, mm-hmm. it's you know, there's Le Petit Prince, there's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, mm-hmm. uh, The Great Gatsby. Um, for more recent, there's Outlander. So, yeah, check it out. And if you want to win, it's very exciting. It's so cool. If you want to win, just go to writerscenter.com.au slash win and uh, the competition closes on the 31st of July. So get in there because this one is a cracker. So writerscenter.com.au slash win. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you want to be a freelance writer, our five-week course in magazine and newspaper writing, Stage 1, is the fastest way to get there. Step by step, you'll explore how to get story ideas, how to approach editors, how to research and structure your articles, plus interviewing skills, industry expectations and much more. You'll enjoy the convenience of learning online in just a couple of hours a week and have your very own tutor to answer all your questions. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash magazine. You know what I'm going to say, Al? <laughs> I don't know. if I, I'm not sure if I'm prepared, Val. <laughs> Late on me. Are you ready for the word of the week? <laughs> I am so, so ready. So okay, ready. this is cool. Abstruse. That's A-B-S-T-R-U-S-E. Abstruse. That's a cool word, isn't it? It's yeah. A, yeah, okay. It's kind of yeah. like a – sounds to me like hmm, there's a combination like of abstract and something going on there, Sub- I think. Substrate. Like something building material, an abstract building material it sounds like, but it's not. If you think this word is hard to understand, then you would be right because it actually means difficult to understand or esoteric. So you might say he had an abstruse approach to solving the problem. That's very abstruse. That is very abstruse. Try using that as your word of so the week. So it's actually a combination of abstract and obtuse in a funny sort of way, yeah? Kind of, yeah. But when I see it, I think of the substrate. I don't know why. I don't know why either, Val. I'm just going <laughs> to leave that right there on the floor. All right. It's probably a bit <laughs> abstruse. All right, let's move on then to our writer in residence this week. Ah, and who do you have for us, Valerie? 
Well, I had a cracker of a time talking to Matthew Benz. Now, he is, um, his book is called Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. It's a nonfiction book. As you know, I love nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And the subtitle is A Rip Roaring Expose of Australia's Most Notorious Conmen, Swindlers, and Larrikins. Now, already <laughs> the, the, the topic is, has got so much color and interest, but the way he tells the stories and the way the book is structured, is what I was looking at in particular, obviously, as a writer. Um, Matthew is an experienced journalist. He has written quite a number of um, bestsellers, including The Men Who Killed Qantas and also Fixed, which looked at the underbelly of the horse racing industry. And um, and another interesting one called Mistress, the true story of mistresses and their men. Um He's also the editor-at-large at the Daily Telegraph, and we had a good old chat. So here is Matthew Benz. So, Matthew, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Great to be with you. Now, your latest book is Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, a rip-roaring expose of Australia's most notorious conmen, swindlers and larrikins. Okay. <laughs> now, the the subtitle makes it quite clear what this book is about, but for readers who haven't read your book yet, can you tell us a little bit more about what's in this book? Well, these these are the conmen, the scoundrels. These are the people who, when you read the newspaper or watch the news, your jaw drops open and you think, I can't believe they did that. I I can't believe people fell for that. How did they do it? Why did they do it? How did the people fall for it? It's, It's the unbelievable group of people who work outside society's norms that, that make you shake your head and say, I can't believe it. And they, they, they're not worthy, but they are very, very interesting and make us want to to know more about them. So um, I explored that. And so it says in the introduction of the book that you pretty much have a lifelong fascination with the stories of con men, well, con con men and women, con people. Mm. <laughs> why mm. is that? Why is why why is it so appealing to you? Well, as a journalist, I um, I started out. I came I came from a, a grew up in Norfolk in England, and uh, my dad was a very much a straight shooting, very honest man who brought me up with a very good sense of morals. So when I joined the local newspaper and I got sent off to my first um, bankruptcy hearing and I saw what happened and heard these stories, it was such a shocking revelation to me. I And I just fell in love with it. I, I <laughs> wanted to know more and I've been interested in scoundrels ever since. Yes. And in this book, you've included, it's a series of different stories of different types of con people, uh, different swindlers, but and there are historical stories like from of Roger Tichborn from the late 1800s mm. or Ethel Livesey from the 1940s, but there are obviously much more modern stories in very recent times and also ones like Christopher Scase, which you lived through. But for the historical ones, I'm interested to know, if you didn't live through it, um, how did you approach the research for such things, especially for something in the late 1800s? How do you, firstly, how do did you find out about them in the first place? Because uh, they you, they weren't front page, front page news like like you know things are now, um, and so therefore you didn't discover them because of what was happening now. And then how did you decide which ones to include, and how did you find out so much about them? Well, 
you're right. I mean, there's an enormous amount of research that goes into a book like this. So obviously when I began, I had absolutely no idea that the, the Tichborne claimant was such a big thing back in, in the 1800s. Um, as you dig and you research, there are little clues and little threads that appear in something here or something there. You pick them up, you chase it, you chase a lot of rabbits down rabbit holes that turn into nothing. But these little bits of gold come up and then once you start digging – um, there's papers, there's historical societies, there's old newspapers, which are a treasure trove. And what's so fascinating is that the stories are as remarkable today as they were back then. Here's a guy, yeah. the Tichborne claimant, who is, is a butcher from Wagga who's claiming to be this um, this aristocrat. His, the aristocrat's mother who's advertised for him ignores the fact that he's changed height that he's changed size, that his accent's completely changed. He's completely forgotten the, how to speak French when he grew up in France. Yes. And she's gone, my son, welcome. Well, you know, sons and mothers are a universal thing. We have them today. And you have to sit and shake your head and go, my God, how how deranged was this poor woman? How desperate was she to find her shipwrecked son that she accepted a butcher from Wagga was him? <laughs> it's amazing. What a story. It is amazing. But take me back to when you first, like before you even discovered him, what do you even do when you're deciding who goes in this? Do you Google Codmen of the 1800s or like how do you even start? <laughs> it doesn't come. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's, a long, it's a long process. I mean, you start. I started with the ones that I knew, but also being a journalist and working on newspapers, I had a, I had a lot that I'd actually worked on and uncovered myself. Um, yes. And so you're working with those and, and you know the backstories and there's so much more that you can get in a book that you can't get into um, a newspaper story. So, you know, I've met, you know, the victims, so many victims. And, and what what becomes clear is that you, you obviously think of the victims as that are the, the people, the suckers who've handed over their money, but it's it's not just the suckers who handed over their monies. It's the commons wives, their children, their families, they're all still out there suffering from what these people do. And and it's that human it's the humanity, the humanity of the stories that really pulls you in and makes you want to want makes you want to tell it. Yeah, absolutely. So in a book like this, which is a collection of different but separate stories about totally different people from totally different worlds, it's still important to ensure that they all read well as a whole book. So Absolutely. how did you determine the order in which to place them or or how t- you could structure the book so that it read well um, as an overall book? Yeah, you've nailed there the, the biggest problem I had with this was because a book like this – Initially, I was kind of doing it chronologically, but Mm. as with many books and other books that I've written, you don't necessarily start a book at the beginning Mm. and finish at the end because, you know, someone picking up the book reads the first chapter and goes, yawn, that's so dull. (laughs) You want to start with the most exciting thing and then – and but so I then structured each chapter to be – to hopefully begin with a bit of excitement so that you're drawn into it and you – and you – you sort of leap from one to the other quite naturally, um, but it, that was it was tricky. Getting the order was was one of the things that I worked through with the publisher quite extensively. 
Mm. And so with um, how much new research did you have to do? Because obviously, as you said, you've, you, you knew a lot of it because you had uncovered some of them yourself or you had worked on those stories. How much of it was really fresh to you? Yeah, quite a lot because you you need to you're trying to get into the person you're trying to get into the in into them as characters. So I was reaching out, contacting people, contacting new victims, contacting um, uh, private eyes. You, you do an awful lot of research. Not all of it gets into the book, but you're you're reaching out, you're talking to people, and you and um, you know I uh, Carl Sinodal, the 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 bank robber who pretended he was blind um i you know i had quite extensive conversations with him uh, which was fascinating not a lot of that got into the book but just mm-hmm. talking to him and trying to get into his mindset is amazing and so when you are doing all this research because an incredible amount of research has gone into this book just talk us through the on a practical level how you organize that research do you do it all first then you start writing or do you start writing and then fill in the gaps or and do you and how do you arrange like do you have different piles of paper for each story Mm. or or how does it work it's very funny well I mean this book has been a lot of research and my other books um dirty money the men who kill Qantas I I was sharing an office at one stage with um another chap and um Eventually, he said, like, I, I can't work in here because <laughs> I'm basically framed around his desk with all the piles of paper. So each I have a giant, uh, giant door-sized piece of paper on the wall that is all, all the chapters are written and there's red arrows saying this goes here and this goes here. And it, and it evolves like a living organism on the wall. And then each, there's a pile of papers and research all stacked along the floor, each one that links to each chapter so then you're going now I've got to get that and then I've got to put that over there and it becomes this kind of mad morass it's like professor brainstorm's cupboard it's um <laughs> and that's that's the way it works that's the way it has to work and then when you get a book at the end of it, you go oh my god look at all of that there's yeah. boxes of stuff and then it's all neatly done in a book and all people have got to do is pick it up and read it it's great <laughs> <laughs> you must mm. love researching oh yeah I guess I do. I I love people. I love stories. I love uncovering the mm. truth. And I think all writing in some form or other is a quest for the truth. And 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 journalism does that too. It's it's the search for the truth. And there's that great moment when you're researching, you're turning th- things up, and you go, "Holy crap! Look at that! I never knew that and that." And you put two things together, mm. and it works brilliantly. Yes. So. I've got, mm. No, go on, please. No, I've got a, a story unrelated to that, but mm. where I went, uh, I was in America chasing around on stories about Elvis Presley, and mm. I met a girl in Las Vegas who said I dated him, blah, blah, blah. And then I tracked down in uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, Elvis's first girlfriend. And she said, oh, you know, I dated him at this time. And it was one of those remarkable bits of research coincidence. I put the two together and went, oh, my God, Elvis was cheating on his first girlfriend with this blonde in Las Vegas. What a story. Nobody knew. And just because I happened to find the two people in America Mm. at that point, that's a research, you know, like, wow's a moment. Yes, yes. So when you were much younger, did you think – I wanted to be a journalist. Like, or, or how did you choose your vocation? 
Uh, no, I didn't think I wanted to be a journalist. I thought I wanted to be an author. Oh. And I really wanted to write, and I, and I loved, loved books. And I looked at the books I loved, and, you know, the, the bookshelves at home were full of, you know, the detectives and so on. And I particularly loved um, Ian Fleming, and I looked at all those books. And the common thread with so many of them was that the guys who had written the books were journalists. And I thought about it, and I thought, well, I know I'm not going to get straight into writing books at 18, and I because I, I don't know enough about writing, and I don't know enough about life. So I thought, well, if that's the way they did it, I'll go and be a journalist, and mm. that will give me the experiences to give me something to write about. And as it turns out, I love being a journalist, and I work in a job that allows me to work and craft and hone words every day, in search of truth, and that's then what happens when you do a book. So with this book, you said that one of the hardest things was nailing the order and having that strong narrative to carry you through to the Mm. end, for the reader to go to the end. Apart from that, what was one of the hardest things about making this book become reality? It's knowing who to leave out. There's so many comments in Australia. It's, yeah. it's, you know, it's a rich vein. You think, well, I've got Dirty Rotten Scandals, two Dirty Rotten Scandals, three, so if everybody buys it, I'll have, there's plenty more to go. Um, it's, you know, it's not what to put in, it's what to leave out, and that was the tricky part. I have no doubt, actually, that that's going to happen, much like um, you know, Australia's hardest prisons. Uh, there's now Australia's toughest prisons and Australia's <laughs> most whatever prisons by James Phelps, I think mm. I think it is. Yes. Um, and now Australia's hardest women's prisons. So I have no doubt there's going to be dirty, rotten scoundrels two and three. So speaking of mm. that then, how did you decide what were the parameters who on who made it into this particular book? Basically, it worked on the basis of, you know, what's the most amazing, ripping story. I mean, you obviously had the ones that everybody knows about. And if you're going to read a book about Australia's worst dirty, rotten scoundrels and you don't put Christopher's case in, and you don't <laughs> put Alan Bond in, people are going to go, well, where where are they? But yes. then if someone's reading it, they also want people they haven't heard of yes. and they want some surprises and you need some historical context. So you've got those and then, you know, the maybe so you've kind of, You've got the surprises, you've got the ones you expect, and then, you know, all those other ones that would slot into those in in amongst them who didn't make it, like I say, they'll be in number two. What's either one of your favourite stories from the book or the one that was most surprising to you, you know, because you discovered something new that you didn't know? Um, I quite I, I quite enjoyed the um, religious uh, the religious One's Michael Guglielmecci, this guy who, mm. um, you know, claimed that he had cancer, wrote a hit song called Healer, appeared on stage with his oxygen and his, you know, in his hair loss, and it all turned out there was a massive con. And really, apparently, he had an addiction to porn, and he was so embarrassed about it that he came up with the claim that he was a he was suffering from cancer. And that whole thing was amazing. I'd, I'd been to the Influencers Church in Atlanta for a story for the paper. And um, talk to them, and it's just the way it's the they call it, you know, swallow and follow. You you know, you swallow the you swallow it, you follow it, and and you know what what's interesting is the way that if you don't, or if you come to the end of your cycle, they you they punt you out of the door while they're bringing the new people in the front door. It's it's this whole cynical business. Um, mm. 
which, again, pursuit of truth. Yes, absolutely. Now, let's talk about some of your other books. You've you've um, written The Men Who Killed Qantas, which is kind of self-explanatory, and um, Dirty Money and Fixed, which is about the horse racing industry, and Mistress, the true story of mistresses and their men. With a lot of these, and I guess let's just take the mistress one, um, how do you get to know who they are and then to interview them and talk to them and spend time with them for them to trust you with their stories? A lot of it, a lot of it comes through, um, a lot of it comes through my job and that's what I spend all day, every day trying to find out, um, those kind of stories. The Men Who Killed Qantas was the, was probably the most groundbreaking book that I wrote at the time because Mm. Qantas was under so much fire. And what was interesting there was that a lot of, people within Qantas were talking to me. I was finding mm. things out that, you know, the management didn't want me to know that um, were very damaging uh, to the company at a time when the company was struggling. And um, it caused a lot of upset to them and caused, you know, a great deal of pain. But funnily enough, um, the crews and, and the pilots and and all of the staff of Qantas – they loved it. Everybody read it. It was being passed around like hotcakes around the planes. Um, <laughs> and, you know, in a way I think um, it may have helped them shake up their act a little bit because it pointed out very publicly some of the things that were going wrong. Mm. When you're writing a book like that, um, which is, well, an expose, as is fixed about the horse racing industry, especially with the horse racing industry, do you ever feel – concerned or in danger or um yeah do you ever worry mm, yeah <laughs> yep. can, can you expand on that <laughs> um yeah you do you've you've upsetting people and and it can mm. be a bit a bit confronting so you know you take precautions and um and uh, again as a journalist and working for the daily telegraph in sydney you know you you're out on the front line basically you do um, confront things and reveal things that people don't want you to. Um, so I, I guess you get used to it. And so can you talk about some of the ramifications of some of your stories? Um, yeah, you get threatened, you get legal letters, um, you get um, people, you know, people are unhappy and uh, as much as there's one side that loves to get that story out there, there's another side that perhaps would rather you didn't and mm. um you know they they threaten you sometimes but again i guess we you know that's the that's the that's the risk you take in in telling a story like that i can tell you that they're doing the Qantas book is probably one of the most stressful times of my life yes. um the the pressure that was put on through so many different channels mm. um was was really very full on but mm. at the same time it was a story I was passionate about and one that had to be told. Mm. And the publisher was fantastic, totally backed me all the way. Great. So when you are writing, because you are also a journalist, you've got to fit in writing these books around um, your work as a journalist. So mm. how, on a practical level, 
how do you do that? <laughs> what do you do? You divide certain days to book. These are book days, or these are book hours, or whatever. How how do you fit it in and and make it work around your other commitments? I often wonder that when I look <laughs> back on it, and I think, how the hell did I actually do that? Because I don't I don't know what I think. I think probably like most writers, what I do is I procrastinate for quite a long time until the deadline's really really pressing, um, and then. Uh, I just put my head down and do it. On on this last one, I you know it was every weekend. Every mm. weekend was just flat. Every out. weekend for how long? For how many months? Um, well, I'd done I, on this one. I had done bits and bobs of chapters that had come up because I'd I'd known about them from work or I'd done some mm. work, so I'd kind of written them as I went. But then, so the rest of it probably. Four or five months of solid weekends of, and you know nights and occasional yes. you know the odd weeks holiday. It takes it takes a long time to write a book, as I think you and all your listeners know. Yes. So, um, do you did the the several months of weekends? Did that include the research as well as the writing? Sometimes I, I've done a lot of the research. The research is easier to do piecemeal. I've mm-hmm. got you know. 10 minutes here or I'm going to pick that book up here or I'm going to go and talk to that person here. It's the actual sitting down and writing was the that time on the weekends. The research, like mm-hmm. I say, you don't have to have a consistent chain of thought for the research. It's I grab a bit here and pop it yes. in and slot it onto that pile there. But then once you've got to put all of those strands together, that's the bit where you've got to have a, have a, a continued strand of thought. And... So I know that you have been a writer, a world journalist for many years now. So this question, it might be kind of like, well, I've just done it for that long, so I know how to do this. But try and see, let me know if you can deconstruct it a little bit because it is, you, you've got your pile of research and you've got to turn that into a chapter, into a, a, a interesting story. And it's done beautifully the the order of information is see, it makes so much sense and you have a great sense of humor and the sentences just flow really really well it's just so readable i know that you've you've been a journalist for decades so it kind of is second nature to you but if you can try and deconstruct it for me on how do you tackle a story like that well, or each one of the one of those chapters do you have some kind of structure in mind or do you this is my go-to thing first or this is I map it out first and then and then fill it in how how does it work I don't necessarily map it out first I find probably the most exciting telling anecdote um, that really grabs me the thing I think about it and think what's the thing that if I was going to tell, you know, someone on the bus or ring my mum up and say, mm. you know, this story, and I'd say, yeah, well, this is, you know, this is the bloke. He was the one who fell off the back of the train when they were machine gunning him and he landed on the horse <laughs> and blah, 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 blah. And she'd go, oh, oh yeah, right. And <laughs> so I wouldn't start, Fred Blogg was born in so-and-so and da-da-da-da, you know, and have the machine gun falling off the train at the end. Yes. I'd do that anecdote and then I'd go, and it all began because, and then there'd be a link to yeah. that, and then you can build it chronologically through it. It kind of it 
it kind of happens. <laughs> the, you know, <laughs> I knew it's all you'd there say that. You, I knew you'd you, say that. And you've got all the, well, it's like, you know, it's like you've got all these dots and the words you use are just the things that join them all together. They they happen sequentially and they link. As you're writing, they link. You go, oh, there's a piece of the jigsaw there. Oh, that'll work. I'll click that bit in there. And it goes click, 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 click. Did you find – no, because Sorry. I think you've been doing it for – you're such a <laughs> professional. You've been doing it for so long it just comes so naturally for you. So I'm almost, I'm also going to guess that it doesn't actually go through that many edits. Is, would that be no. correct? Yeah, no, very, very little. You're the the editors, doing... they always come back to me and go, ah, yeah, well, I don't really feel I've earned my money here because I didn't have to do anything. <laughs> but that's not always true. I wrote a book um, – one of the early books I wrote was called When the Bear Breaks, which was about – Kathleen Fobig, who killed her oh, yeah. four children. Um, that one was a high-pressure book. Um, I had eight weeks to write it, and um, that was you know, that was only the I think the second book I'd written, and and so it was it was quite hard work, and I and I hadn't got my structures completely sorted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember one day, a whole day, a very very valuable day, where I was trying to get out two thousand words a day, and I. I was at like 396 words and I could not get through this mental block. And mm. what I did was eventually I just threw my hands up in the air and said, oh, this isn't working. I'm going for a swim. I went for a swim. Mm. I was swimming up and down, got in the pool worrying about it. After a while I stopped thinking about it. And about lap 16, it went <laughs> click. Oh, this yeah. is how you do it. This, this, and this. Because I take my yeah. mind off it. That will work. Even still, I sent that to the um, – publisher and then um the editor came back and completely restructured the chapters made it much better oh, good. and i learned yeah. so much from that in terms of all oh, right this is how you structure a book this is the way chapters work better so mm. uh, you know i had a really good editor who helped me with that book and i've learned from that which is now kind of why several books down the line it, it's easy now i think yes are you already working on your next book um, I'm in discussions with the publisher. They've got several ideas and, and we're debating. So, okay, that's an interesting thing because you just said they've got several ideas. With this, was this your idea or a publisher's idea? Yeah, no, this this was my idea. No, when I said they've got they've got several of my ideas and we're debating which one to do. Oh, I see. Okay, cool. Which, yeah, yeah. This book was a, it was a rollicking read. I And I can only assume it was a rollicking ride to write if you know what I mean is is that the case yeah it was fun you know because they're such like I said they're great stories and I think if you're not enjoying writing it how is anyone going to enjoy reading it if it's a punish to write then it's going to be a punish to read it comes through I've I feel so strongly with writing having done it for so long and particularly as a tabloid journalist is that one word can convey so much emotion and I feel that the way you feel as you write it comes through. And I don't know, it's like some mystical process. But if I'm laughing when I'm writing it, it's like my laughter comes through the words and hits the reader and they start laughing too. Mm. I don't know how that happens because you read the words individually and you think, well, they're actually not that funny. But you watch people read them and they're smiling. Yes, yes. And so when you were 18, you're looking at your bookshelf and you're thinking, I want to be like Ian Fleming or whoever – are you mm. have you turned your hand to fiction? Uh, yes, but it's not been published. Funnily enough, one of the first books I wrote 
um, was a book called The Lottery. And it was in Britain just before the lottery came out and uh, the national lottery. And mm -hmm. I looked at Britain at the time and I thought, you know, with the, all, all the different things that are happening, we're not united as a country like we used to be where you'd watch everyone would be talking about the carry-on film that had been on Bank Holiday Monday or something. <laughs> and I thought the lottery is going to unite the nation. I'm going to do a, I'm going to do a book about the lottery. So I wrote this book about the lottery. Um, and I went uh, – it was inspired by a real event that happened in Australia. And I'd been in Australia, went to Tasmania, sat in my friend's house for eight weeks, no longer, and wrote this book, went back, got it to the publishers in um, Britain – and, they, and then comes all the rejection slips, rejection slips, rejection slips. Um, I don't know, even know how many people actually even read it. Um, mm. And then I called in a favour from a bloke who knew a publisher and we got it in front of him and I know he read it. And he came back and he said, you know what? It's well written. The dialogue is accurate. It's funny. I just don't think there's a market for it. And I, hmm. and I looked at him, I, I, I wrote back and said, I didn't know it was well written. I didn't know it was funny. I didn't know any of that stuff. The only thing I do know is that there is a market for this. And sure enough, six months after the lottery started, there's a TV show, there's 15 books, there's a movie, everyone's <laughs> doing it. And, he, and, you know, if I had any hair, I'd be tearing it out. But <laughs> anyway, that's, that's... So do you prefer to write fiction or nonfiction? Oh, well, look, I love both. The great yeah. joy of fiction is that you don't spend 10 hours researching a quote. You can just make it up. Yeah. Mm. So, mm. you know, and they say exactly what you want to say as opposed to you researching it and saying, well, he said this, and it's not quite where I need the story to go, so I've got to reshape everything and make it work. Yes. You know, this way they just, you, you know, it's fiction. You want him to say, damn you to hell, well, he can say it. <laughs> well, of course, truth is stranger than fiction and I think that's what mm. works so well about this book and obviously your other books as well. But this book is a, is is just, <laughs> it's just really entertaining and um, you learn so much and it's also beautifully written. So um, congratulations on it. And thank, thank you, you very so much. much for your time today, Matthew. That's my pleasure. Thank you. There you go, Matthew Benz and his book, Dirty Rotten Scandrels. Now, I think that one of the great things about our job is we get to talk to so many interesting people, don't you reckon? It is most assuredly uh, probably the biggest bonus. I mean, apart <laughs> from the fact that I get to talk to you oh, every and week. I get to talk to you. <laughs> twice a week I mean seriously I mean how lucky am I but like yeah I just think it's I mean I, I think you kind of it's funny people say to me you know you know what was the best thing about you know what well, what is the best thing about freelance writing and you know working in magazines and it's just it, it just comes down to you <laughs> for someone like me it's fantastic because you get to sit down with really interesting people and mm. ask them all the questions that you don't yeah that you that you want you can ask yes. stupid, stupid questions, you can ask intelligent questions, but you get to basically drill people about what makes them interesting. And 
when they're sort of, you know, when they're people that are passionate about something, then you get to talk to people about what they're passionate about. And yeah. those are always the most interesting conversations you're ever going to have. Like I always say to my boys when, you know, we're trying to teach them social niceties. This is one yeah. of the interesting things about parenting is mm-hmm. actually trying to teach them how to be, you know, civilized human beings. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's always like, you know, my, my oldest particularly, you know, he's not a real chatty sort of guy. He's quite chatty in writing. He's a bit like his mom, quite chatty in writing, but you know, socially it's not real chatty guy and um I always say to him you know you don't actually have to say much at all all you have to yeah. do is an interesting question like just throw in a question find out what they're interested in and then just keep asking questions and you will not only learn an enormous amount of stuff but they will think you are the best person in the room because they That's got to true. talk about themselves for hours <laughs> absolutely that is that is so, so true you know, this is Al's number one social tip just ask mm. a couple of pointed questions and let them go for it and you'll be totally fine for sure but you know what um even though we get to interview you know some really interesting people uh, in this position that we're in and in our position as freelance writers that strategy backfired on me this week oh no what happened what happened tell me all i do love a good backfire (laughs) what happened so you know how uh i also co-host this other podcast so called so you want to be a photographer for people who are interested in line yeah (laughs) for people who are interested in photography and occasionally on that particular one uh, and my co-host, her name is Gina, and occasionally on that particular one we interview um, some interesting photographers. And this week, like possibly even as we speak, you know who we're interviewing? No, who? Except I don't get to do it. Right. John Bon Jovi's photographer. <laughs> Just just talk about this. John Bon Jovi has an official photographer. Yeah. You who love John Bon Jovi are not not actually Mm. interviewing said photographer. Correct. (sighs) I don't know how this happened. How did this happen? I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, the bonus of this would be to get the photos. So surely you could still, (laughs) like, get Gina to schmeagle you, you know, an exclusive shot of John at his best angle. (laughs) <laughs> I probably already own that photo because I've got all the coffee table books and stuff as well. <laughs> you are so funny. So she's so she's talking to so she's talking to someone who gets close up and personal, uh-huh. like really close up and personal with um with John Bon Jovi on a daily basis. Yes, yes, okay. not me. But anyway, that's right. a whole other story. <laughs> so we're just going to talk about your your distinct disappointment here, are we? Is that uh-huh. the, the crux of the conversation? Sad me, sad me. <laughs> On that note, we are almost at the end of this week's episode. What are you doing this week, Al? <laughs> I'm not crying in disappointment over no. not talking to John Bon Jovi's photographer, that's for sure. <sighs> what am I doing? Oh, do you know what I'm doing? Um, I yeah. owe people I'm back to editing. <laughs> Oh, which people. which one? Uh, I have the copy edit of the Book of Answers, which is the second oh. book in the Adaban Cipher series, on yes. my desk, ready to go. 
So mm-hmm. as soon as I get my children, you know, like fully back to school, because I have had one that's been sick, which I haven't wanted to talk about. But anyway, I have had one who's been sick and so therefore has been, you know, lingering, malingering. Mm. Um, but, yeah, so that's what I'm doing. You'll be busy then. Uh, yes, I will be busy. And I'm still mm. writing stuff as well. I, I haven't done a write a book with Al for quite some time. I'm, I'm actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was sort of like When are you going to do that? Like. Well, um, I don't, I don't you, know. I've been working. How far are you into book three, are you? I, I'm not writing book three at this stage. I'm writing something oh, totally writing. different. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm working on something new. So um. I'm actually, I've decided, I think I'm going to take a slightly different approach to this one and I think I might just do it on the down low for a little while and just see how mm. I how I go. Um, and I might I might go back to, I might bring back write a book with Al for NaNoWriMo or something. I think I think at this stage I'm just going to quietly work through this new thing I'm doing because it's very new for me, like it's a kind of a whole new area. So it's going to take me a little bit of, um, going to take quite a lot of thought process. Is it I middle think. grade? It's middle grade, yeah, mm-hmm. which is just a slightly different approach. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sort of like I'm just quietly working away here. And I'm just going to see how that works out for me. But I may find, because, you know, the accountability aspect of write a book with Al is a very good thing for me. It and for is good. Else. So mm. I, may, I may bring it back depending on how I, how I go. Anyway, cool. that's not what I'm doing though. I'm copy editing. Let's talk about yes. that. Yes. Mm. All right. Copy editing. Busy, copy. busy, busy. busy Fantastic. Busy. Yeah. All right. So where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontate.com. Uh, you will find me at, on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram <laughs> at Alison Tate Writer. Uh, sorry, I've got this whole I've got this whole other thought process going on in my head now. And so what about? Um, oh, about the fact that I'm redoing the Mapmaker Chronicles website at the moment. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's focus. Sorry. <laughs> just your brain ever split in two and just and Sometimes. sort of like there's words coming out of your mouth but your brain's actually thinking about something else. Yeah, anyway, that was me. <laughs> what about you, Val? Where do we find you? <laughs> You'll find me online at Valerie Koo. That's K-H-O-O on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, you will also find me on Facebook. Just search for Valerie Koo and I'm the one in Sydney. And it would be great to connect. In the meantime, you'll find all of the show notes at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au where you'll discover all of the links that we've mentioned and any other resources that we think that you will find useful. And, uh, yeah, that brings us to the end of the episode. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.